0: Well, good evening. Great to see everybody. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, yeah, great to have you. I had kind of a shocking experience earlier this year. I was in uh, Turkey in February uh, visiting some of our church partners. And we were in the grocery store, stopped for some water and snacks and whatever, and looked over and saw this, this rack with all the cigarettes. And the cigarette warnings in Turkey are crazy. They're like pictures of like a lung that has been filled up with cancer and all these really graphic things to try to distract you and, and actually over, or detract you, I guess, from smoking cigarettes. And over time, as you actually look, even in our country, the warnings related to cigarettes have really changed. So I want to show you kind of from the beginning. Here's the early warnings. Uh, Caution, cigarette smoking may be hazardous to your health, right? Now we look back and go like, maybe? Like maybe? What do you mean maybe? Like I guess they weren't sure, but it's like, hey, okay. it's a little cautious. Then it ramps up a little bit Surgeon General's warning: Smoking causes lung cancer, heart disease, emphysema, and may complicate pregnancy. So eh, it's getting a little bit worse. Okay, then they ramp it up another notch. Smoking can cause a slow and painful death. True. Like now it's getting more intense. And now here's what here's what a lot of the smoking warning labels look like now. Head and neck cancer, fatal lung disease, harm your children amputation what ramps it up is the is the image isn't it i mean do you see in each case the language is getting a little more intense and now the images show up and it's more intense these are warnings national institute of health said that actually these kinds of warnings on cigarettes if you, if you're exposed to these you're 40% less like 40% less likely to begin smoking so they're effective they make a difference because important warnings that actually get our attention they change our behavior. Well, that's what John is trying to do in this passage. In chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, this is largely the Apostle John trying to warn us against sin. This is the first time he's done it. He's been talking along the way about the dangers of sin and the problem of sin. Today, he's really trying to ramp up the intensity. He uses some intense language. He, right, this is like his verbal word pictures of like, really, I'm serious. This is bad for you. Watch out. Uh, This book is written by the Apostle John, we were studying at throughout the summer. Uh, this is the guy who, when he was a teenager, he was hanging out with Jesus. He was one of his 12 disciples. He writes about that in the Gospel of John. Now he's an older man. He's looking back at a lot of his life, and he's looking at a church that is struggling, and they're discouraged, and they're beginning to deconstruct their faith, and we're to wonder if God is really good. Can he really be trusted? And he's writing them to encourage them to hold on, to encourage them to not let go. And one of the things in particular that this church seems to have been struggling with was that they were beginning to be taught uh, some influences that really go back into a lot of Greek thinking, that uh, the body was bad, and the soul and the spirit was good, right? That's a big part of kind of Greek dualism. And so they, as a result of that, if, if that's the case, then what you do with your body doesn't really matter that much. It's just your body. It's, eh, it's gross. It's base. It's, it's rudimentary. It's, eh, that's not the big thing. What you do doesn't matter. What matters is what you think. What matters is what you believe, What matters is not what you do. It's what you believe. And so they're being tempted to go into that direction. And John is in this passage saying, hey, no, no, no. It matters a ton what you do. It matters a ton what you do. What you do whether it's sin or whether it's righteousness, it matters a lot. And it's gonna matter a lot when Jesus returns. And so I want you to turn over to to chapter two of 1 John, chapter two, verse 28, swipe left if you have it there on your phone. And look at that verse, because that verse is really like the topic sentence for this whole section. Everything that we're gonna look at in verses four to 10 comes out of what he's trying to do in verse 28. Here's what he says he's trying to do in verse 28 of chapter two. He says this, and now... Little children. By the way, he keeps saying little children throughout this book. It's this term of affection. It's this term of endearment. He's writing to them as a, someone who cares about them. I want what's best for you, he's saying. Pay attention because I, I care about you. And now little children, abide in him. That means remain in him. Stay connected to him. Stay close to him. Stay firm to him. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Isn't that interesting? He's saying Jesus is coming back, and when he comes, you don't want to be shrinking away from him like, oh gosh, he caught me. You don't want to be like, oh no. You want to have confidence. Right? Like, if Jesus were to come back right now, like, based on kind of how your life's going, would you be like, oh man, I've been talking to this guy a bunch. I've been living for this guy. I've been totally dialed into this guy. He's here. Or would it be like, ah, uh, Hi, I know I have said I believe in you. We haven't talked in a while. I kind of do a bunch of the stuff that you don't like. Good to see you. A little awkward, right? So that's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, wh- I just want you to have confidence. I want you to have confidence. I want you to live your life in such a way, so connected, so abiding, so dialed into Jesus that if he were to come back right now, you'd go, oh man, great to see you. Jonathan Edwards, uh, one of the great minds of American history, he was a pastor and a theologian. Well, before all that, when he was just a 19-year-old Christian saying, man, what do I want to live for? Here's some resolutions he made. He made a long list of resolutions. Here's a couple of them. He said this. He said, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. This is like the opposite of YOLO right? This is not going, he only lived once, just get it all in. No, he's going, if it was the last hour of my life, I want to be careful. Here's another resolution. Resolved, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. You know that you will have a last hour. The last hour before you die and face God, or the last hour before Jesus returns, Now, you don't know when it is. I don't know when it is, but we'll have a last hour. And what Edwards is saying is, I don't want to be doing stuff that I'd be kind of embarrassed about if I knew it was the last hour. That's exactly what John's talking about. He goes, I want you to have confidence and not shrink back in shame that is coming. And so with this, he's then giving us an intense warning. Now, he does it really tenderly. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God? And so we are, right? This is is coming not from a place of him trying to make you question or make you doubt or make you discouraged. He's trying to, he's he's tender. He's saying, we're loved by God. We're children of God. That's who we are. But it's also very clear. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you little children let no one deceive you this is the only command in this passage right sometimes we go through a sermon we go through the text and you go well what's the application what should i do here's the application let no one deceive you in other words there's a lot of things that are going to make you go well i don't know am i okay with god am i all right with god he's going i'm writing this so you would be really clear so you would not be confused so that you could have confidence and not have to shrink back i want to do it clearly And this kind of a warning, this is important. This is part of what the scripture does. The scripture is is always telling us God loves us and inviting us to consider the danger of walking away from it. One of my uh, seminary professors, Mike Goheen, um, he just has this great relationship with all of his grandkids. He's a great father, great-grandfather, and he, uh, he loves the few opportunities he's had where he gets to speak a message to his kids and his grandkids and some of the kids in their church. And he told us one time about how he tries to sum up the whole biblical story when he preaches it to kids. And so there's hand motions, all right? So we're gonna all pretend we're uh, seven years old right now, okay, but, but here's basically what it is. If you're gonna sum up the message of the Bible, sum up the good news of the gospel, here, here's what Goheen says when he says it to the kids. He says, first it's this, God's saying, I love you. I love you. All right, so join me, everybody. Let's, let's, let's participate. Get those arms out. Whack somebody next to you. Come on, let's go. Even you, Matt Price. Come on, buddy. Let's do this. I love you. He's not, oh, there it is. There it is. Yeah, you're a pa. I get it. This is, this is Father God going, I love you. I love you. Okay, so that's the first part. The second part is, is Jesus says, come follow me. That one's a little easier, right? I love you. Come follow me, right? He's going, I love you. I want you. I want to be close to you. I want you near me. I want you following in the way of life. I love you. Come follow me. Now, here's the third thing. Don't you ever walk away from me. Now, some of us really like to do that, like <laughs> get that finger wagging, right? But this is not going, God going, boy, I'm disappointed. He's going, hey, this is where so many of us get it wrong. We think actually the first part of the story is God going, you better do it right. And then I'll love you. no. It's, I love you. Come follow me. Don't ever walk away from me. Because if you walk away from me, you're walking away from the path of life. You're walking away from the path of blessing. You're walking into a path of fear and shame and guilt and discouragement and anxiety and worry and living outside of the grain of my good creation. Don't ever walk away from me. And so the Bible has lots of warnings, and they can be pretty stern, but the reason they're stern is because we're hard headed. And we're hard-hearted. And we drift into things that really just wreck us. And so this whole text is God saying, I love you. Come follow me. Don't ever walk away. And it's pretty intense. So the big idea of this section in verses 4 to 10 is this. Christians can't make peace with sin. Christians can't make peace with sin. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can't just make peace with sin and go, well, it's just how I am well it's just part of my sin nature well it's just how I was raised well it's just what normal well you don't know how she talks to me well you don't know how stressful my work is well like no no no. Christians can't make peace with sin we go to war with sin we fight sin we battle sin we resist sin we flee sin we don't make peace with sin that's the big idea that we're going to see in this text He's going to give us three reasons. He's going to tell us the reason is because sin is rebellious alignment with Satan. Sin is inconsistent with the new birth. And Jesus came to destroy sin. So that's what we're going to look at as we look at this passage. So first, let me just help us see this big idea. Christians can't make peace with sin. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 will kind of blow your, your hair back, what's left of it. Uh, verse 6. Uh, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Whoa. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Uh, Anybody sinned today? Did you sin more than once today? If you did, you're like, roh, Like, that sounds scary. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Like, I thought I saw him. I thought I knew Jesus. I thought I was a Christian. What is he saying? Right, this gets our attention. Now, is John saying, like, if you're a Christian, you won't sin anymore? If you're a Christian, you'll just be holy and perfect and righteous all the time. You'll never sin anymore. Well, he's definitely not saying that. And the reason we know that is throughout the book, he addresses that very issue. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I'm writing all this stuff so that you won't sin, but if you do, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So I don't want you to sin, but if you do, like I'm assuming you're going to sin at some point. Chapter 3, verse 3, everyone who hopes in Jesus purifies himself as he is pure. Well, if you're hoping in Jesus and you still need to be purified, then it must mean there's still sin going on. So, so John doesn't, he's not here saying that there's perfectionism, that if you're a Christian, you'll never sin again. What is he talking about? Well, the, the, the key is that idea of keeps on sinning. And so I want to show you this in the text. It's, uh, the way this text arranges is, is pretty interesting. You have verses 4 to 7 and verses 8 to 10, and they line up almost parallel. You keep seeing the same ideas repeated throughout it. And so I want to break it down that particular way. So uh, he's, uh, verse 6 said, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning, no one who keeps on sinning, has either seen him or known him. Where's he gonna, what does he mean keeps on sinning? Well, he's going to make it really clear throughout this whole thing. So this first section, beginning verse four, starts with everyone. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Then in verse eight, whoever, that corresponds with the everyone, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. In other words, he's been making a practice of it. This is an ongoing thing for him. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness... Is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother, right? If you're not practicing righteousness, you're practicing class, unrighteousness, (laughs) sin, right? So you get this, like makes a practice of sinning, keeps on sinning, keeps on sinning, makes a practice of sinning, sinning in an ongoing way, makes a practice of sinning, keeps on sinning, not practicing righteousness. What's he saying? He's not saying you'll never sin ever. This is all present tense language. And it's all saying, if you're just making peace with sin, if you're making a practice of sin, if the normal way of life for you is just indulging your flesh, indulging your sin, watch out. When I was growing up playing sports, my coaches would always say, they'd say, you know, practice makes perfect. You got to practice because practice makes perfect. That's not true. Practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. And isn't is an interesting, that language, whoever makes a practice of sinning, whoever makes a practice of sinning, makes a practice of sinning. He doesn't just say whoever sins, but whoever like, this is, the, this is your routine, this is your norm, this is like, you practice. What are we talking about, man? Are we talking about practice? Yeah, we're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. But, but for God, it's all the same. And the way you practice is the way you play. I love this quote by James Clear in his great book on Habits. He says this, you don't rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. Systems, by the way, you could just trade that out and say systems are habitual practices. Systems are what you've set up to practice normally. Right? So you can have all sorts of goals about all these things you're going to do and all these books you're going to read and all this way your life's going to change and all these things you're going to do differently. But you don't rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. You fall to the level of your habitual practices, what you practice, what you do all the time. Right? So like right now, one of the best college coaches in uh, college football, maybe the best ever, people love him, people hate him, but it's Nick Saban. And he recruits all these five-star athletes to, to Alabama and he gets them there. And, and what makes him so successful, if you just listen to anything, read anything, follow anything related to Alabama football and Nick Saban, it is the way they practice. Right, they practice full out, full go all the time. They get the best athletes in the country, and they put them against each other, ones v. ones, and they go, and they practice, and it's every rep, and it's every practice, and it's every turn, and it's all these things, and his whole philosophy of coaching is, we're going to practice with such intensity, we're going to practice with such vigor, that when we get to the game, it'll actually be easier. And it is easier, because especially in September, they schedule like the, you know, Iowa School of the Blind, and you know, schools like that to play against. I mean, just absolute cupcake city, and they destroy those people. But then they get in the SEC, and, they, get in, and they, they beat those people, too, because you know what? All these other teams are slower than they are in practice. What, what do you practice? Maybe another way. What habits, what systems? You didn't set out to form it, but, like, you always do this after dinner, and you always do this first thing in the morning. And you always do this when you have that afternoon lull at work. And you always, like, what are the things that you're doing? And it's, it's actually, you're practicing sin. He says, you can't do that. Christians can't do that. That's inconsistent. Well, why? Why is that such a problem? Well, he's going to give us three reasons. The first reason is Christians can't make peace with sin because sin is rebellious alignment with Satan. Sin is rebellious alignment alignment with Satan. Where do we get that? Well, in verse four, he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. This word lawlessness, it means rebellion. That, that's really what's at the heart of sin. Sin isn't just about doing what's wrong. It's about rebelling in your heart against what God says is best. God says, this is the path of life. You go, no, I want that. This is the way of blessing. No, nope, I'll do this. Don't do that. Well, are you sure? Do this. Well, I don't know if I want to. I don't feel like it. Right? That's what, at the heart of sin, sin is lawlessness, he says. Whoever makes a practice of sin is practicing lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is rebellion. Well, okay, so here's what that means. That means sin is lawlessness and lawlessness is rebellion. What's a like really strong example of that kind of rebellion? Well, in the other half of the passage, it talks about it. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It talks about the devil in verse 10 as well. So the devil is the rebel. The devil is the lawless one. The devil is the one that is uh, rebelling against God. And so what he's saying is, if you're making peace with sin, you're actually forming an alliance with Satan, you go, know, well, where does he say that? Well, he says it in some pretty strong language. I actually think we gotta be careful, the language we use, right? Sometimes we'll I'll hear someone and they'll say, you know, my wife always. Blah 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 blah. I go, Well done. Always? You know, he never. You gotta be careful about the language you use. Well, look at the language he uses. Look at verse eight. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Whoa. Like, he actually didn't even just say, just like aligned with the devil, of the devil. Look at what he says in verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoa. Right, this is, this is the graphic picture on the cigarette package. This is intense, right? It's a problem to be of the devil. It's a problem to be a child of the devil. And some of you go like, I don't know, the devil, what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. The devil hates you. The devil hates God. The devil hates everything good that God has made. And therefore, the devil hates you. And if God says, I love you, come follow me, the devil's going to go, I hate God, I don't want you to find life in him. I'm gonna do everything I can to attack you. Now, sometimes that attack is gonna just be comforting us, drawing us in to his way of life so that we forget about God. But, but make no mistake, it is not about our pleasure. It is not about our joy. It is not about our delight. It is about our destruction. And so this is why it's a problem. You can't make peace with sin because that's rebelliously aligning with the one who wants to destroy God and destroy his world and destroy you. You go, oh well, I'm not a child of the devil. You know, I'm not of the devil. I mean, that's like the like dictators; those those people. No, no, no. But look at what it says, verse eight: Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Here's how I wrote it: You don't have to commit murder to be a child of the devil. You just have to keep hating your coworkers. You don't have to be a sex trafficker to be a child of the devil. You just have to keep using porn. You don't have to be a terrorist to be a child of the devil. You just have to keep selfishly using your power. You don't have to be an adulterer to be a child of the devil. You just have to stay indifferent to your spouse. Get this. Being a child of the devil is not about the intensity of your sin. It's about the lack of intensity in fighting it if you make a practice of it, if this is the normal way of life, if this is just how I am, if this is just how it's always been, and there's no resistance, and there's no confession, and there's no fight, and there's no effort, you got to watch out. And and here's why this is so dangerous, is because no one wakes up and is like, you know what I'm going to have as my New Year's resolution? I'm going to be a child of the devil this year. I'd like to finish the year like that. No, it's dangerous because it's a gradual slide away from God, a gradual hardening. That's what's talked about in Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, watch out, right? It's another warning, it's another cigarette label. Hey, pay attention, beware, caution. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's this falling away. There's this hardening. And again, there's that deceitfulness. That's like verse 7. Do not be deceived. Let no one deceive you. There's a deceitfulness of sin. That's why we need RC, small groups. That's why we need men's fight clubs. That's why we need women's tables. That's why we need Redemption Young Adults. That's why we need to be texting each other and why we need to be encouraging each other and why we need to be calling each other is because all of us are in this place where we are vulnerable to drift from the living God. And yet, here's what I want. I mean, John's going, that's not who you are. Right, if you're if you're a follower of Jesus, you go, know, I've seen the beauty of Jesus, I've seen the glory of God, I've experienced forgiveness, I've experienced great. Okay, here's what I'm gonna tell you. Then then just making a life of ongoing sin, that's not who you are. And that's actually the next reason is that Christians can't make peace with sin because sin is inconsistent with the new birth. It's inconsistent with who you are, it's new inconsistent with, with what it means to be a new birth. Newly born child of God. And so in this passage, there's a, a number of places that refer to us as being children of God. Verse seven, little children, right? Of course, that's a term of affection from John, but it's also a way of saying, hey, you're children of God by faith in Christ. And then look what he says in verse nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed, by the way, that word seed is the Greek word sperma. So it's it's talking about like, being a child of God. God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. By this is, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Who does, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you're a believer in Jesus, you've had something happen to you. right? This is not about just what you've started to think Differently about the world, but you've actually had a change of your heart. The way it talks about it in Ephesians chapter 2 is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and uh, caring after the prince of the power of the air, in bondage to Satan, in bondage to self, in bondage to sin, but God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works that no one would boast. We're God's masterpiece. We're going to do his work, but we are saved by grace. That's the being born again. That's what it is to be a child of God. We're now not his enemies, but his friends, not his opposers, but his children, It's one of the marks of God's children. Well, John talks about it throughout this letter. Here's what he says in chapter 2, verse 29. He says, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Or chapter 4, verse 7, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Chapter 5, verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So Christians aren't going to just get stuck in this making peace with sin because that's inconsistent with this new birth. Followers of Jesus have had this resurrection life happen in our hearts. Right? What happens with the new birth is is we're like we're like Jesus' friend Lazarus, who was in the grave. And, And Jesus at one point calls out to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And whenever you heard the gospel and you perceived it to be glorious and to be good news and to be convicting and to be freeing and to be hopeful, whenever that happened, that was like God saying to you, come forth, wake up, come alive. And there you are. And now you've experienced a new birth and you're a child of God. And so so the key here is you have to remember who you are. In his book on habits, Craig Groeschel says this, you do what you do because of what you think of you. You do what you do because of what you think of you. In other words, our habits actually come out of our identity. You do the things that, that a person like that would do. Right? And so... One really interesting example of this is looking at people who are trying to quit smoking, right? We talked about the cigarette warnings, right? That's to try to keep people from starting smoking. Well, what about if you've already started smoking? How do you break that habit? That's a very addictive thing. It's a very difficult thing, right? And they found that that some people approach it like this, right? They, you offer them a cigarette and they say, no, thanks. I'm trying to quit. Other people who actually have more success in quitting smoking, you offer them a cigarette. They say, no, thanks. I'm not a smoker. What's the difference? The difference is how you see yourself. The difference is in your identity, right? The first person says, I'm trying to quit. In other words, I am a smoker. I'm just trying not to be. But who I am is a smoker. The other person says, no, thanks. I'm not a smoker. Who are they? They're not a smoker. And so your identity actually forms your habits. Sometimes I try to think about this as a, as a dad is to go, okay, what would a great dad do in this situation? <laughs> What would the best husband do in this moment? What would the godliest leader do in this meeting? Right, and try to go, okay, I'm gonna try to be that. And of course, the devil's gonna try to convince you you're not that. He's gonna try to accuse you. He's gonna try to condemn you. He's gonna tell you you're worthless, you're disgusting, you're too far gone, you'll never be pure, you can't change, you're pathetic, you're an embarrassment, you're gross, get out of here. And yet the Bible comes in and gives you the truth about who you really are. Here's what the Bible has to say. The Bible has to say that you are wanted by God, that you are precious in God's sight, that you are not condemned, that you're a new creation, that you're God's masterpiece, that you're accepted by God, that you're more than a conqueror through Christ, that you're a child of God. That's who you are. So the question is not, what would a porn addict do? The question is, what would a child of God do? It's not what would a chronic overspender do. It's what would God's masterpiece do. Right, and so that's how we begin to think of ourselves. I'm God's masterpiece. I'm in Christ. I'm precious in his sight. He wants me. I'm born again. I'm not who I was. God in his grace has saved me and rescued me and changed me. And I'm, I'm a new creation. I don't have to live that old way. The old is gone. The new has come. Christians can't make peace with sin because sin is inconsistent with the new birth. And then finally, here's a third and last reason. Christians can't make peace with sin because Jesus, the sinless one, came to destroy sin. Again, in 2.28, as he's setting this whole thing up, John says, I don't want you to shrink in shame when Jesus comes back. He's coming again. But what about the first time he came? Why did Jesus come? Well, he came to destroy sin. Look what it says in verse 5. You know that he appeared. Why? In order to take away sins. Why did he come? To take away sins. Why did he want to take away sins? Well, keep reading. And in him, there is no sin. Jesus, therefore, get this, Jesus was the sinless one. Jesus was the one who always listened to the voice of the Father. Jesus was the one who was always pure. Jesus was the one who was always considerate, who was always loving, who was always kind, who was always listening, who was always taking interest, who was always honest. And yet his honesty was also always met perfectly with kindness. In him was no sin. And Jesus is experiencing the sinless life and going, guys, you have no idea how electric this is. This is the kingdom of God. This is the way you were meant to be. And come follow me. Get in on this. Get in. He he appeared. He's going, I'm going to take away sins. I'm telling you what life of freedom is. I'm telling you what a life of joy is. I'm telling you what a life of power and connection and freedom. I'm telling you what it is. Come. And so when Jesus comes and he dies on the cross, he appears in order to take away sins so that in him, in us, there would be no sin. That's what he's doing. Well, what's another way to say the same thing? Well, look at verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What's the works of the devil? To get you to sin. Why? Because the devil hates you. Why? Because the devil hates God and he hates God's world and he hates God's creation and he just wants to ruin you and Jesus is saying, no, 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 I came and I lived this perfectly obedient life and I died as a sacrifice to take away your sin so that the works of the devil would be destroyed and you could have freedom and life and joy. This is Jesus Christ Christ The righteous, as said in chapter 2, verse 1. Remember, we talked about how these kings have these great titles. You know, Suleiman the Magnificent and Alexander the Great. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he invites you into that righteousness. So this is why you can't make peace with sin. Because if you're making peace with sin, you're making peace with the thing that Jesus came to destroy. Some of you, maybe a decade ago, that movie Captain Phillips came out. About captain Phillips the guy that was so you know this story right the guy that was uh you know a, a ship captain and these Somali pirates attacked his ship and most of us were like what There's still pirates in the world how did that happen I, that was like a new thing right and and he gets his his ship gets taken over by these pirates well eventually the seals come in the navy seals and they come in and they just kick absolute butt and they like destroy the works of the pirates And they bring Captain Phillips back. Imagine if that point, Captain Phillips is like, you know what, never mind guys, I want to be a pirate. You'd be like, that's crazy. We we just came to destroy the work of the pirates. You can't join the pirates. That's what he's saying. So, big idea here is in verse seven, let no one deceive you. If we're going to avoid some deceit. We're going to ask a couple of questions. Here's the first question. Are you a child of God? Or are you still a slave to sin and therefore a child of the devil? And, and, and you can get hung up on child of the devil because, again, that's such intense language. But are you still a slave to sin? And no matter what you say you believe, actually what you live for is always sin. And it's always yourself. And it's always your pleasure. And it's always your comfort. And it's always your security. And it's always your reputation. And it's all about you. And you're at the center of your life. Not Again, not in terms of what you say, but in terms of the way you live. And actually the reason why you keep getting stuck there is because you've never been set free. I want to tell you tonight's a night to be set free, tonight's a night to trust in Christ, to turn, to repent, to believe, to experience the forgiveness and the grace and the healing and the joy of God, the power of God, to experience that new birth. Are you a child of God? Now, if you are a child of God, here's a question for you to consider. Is there any sin that I'm nurturing? Is there any sin right now and I should stomp on it? I should blowtorch it, but instead I'm kind of scooping it up and coddling it, petting it, nurturing it. And it's little, and it's mostly private, and I don't know if anybody sees it, but, it's, but you're nurturing it. And if you, if you zoomed out and you step back and you played it out, this little seed forms in, it, it's going to give birth to something. And that thing it's going to give birth to is going to ruin you, and it's going to ruin the people you love, and it's going to make you feel ashamed at his coming. And it, I'm just to tell you tonight, it's not worth it. So consider this, the warning from the Lord saying, "Don't do it. Don't go there. Don't nurture it. Put it to death. Delete that app. Invite that accountability. Schedule that therapy appointment. Meet with that counselor. Call the friend you've been ignoring back. Show up to small group. Take a step. Don't don't nurture that sin. Fight it. Resist it. If you do, you'll step into the joy, into the freedom of life the way we were made to be. Let's pray. So, Father in heaven, thank you for your abundant grace to us. Thank you for appearing to take away our sins. Thank you for appearing to destroy the works of the devil. And God, we pray tonight that we would not be deceived, that we would not think we're okay with you when we're actually not. God, thank you that you're so gracious and so merciful and so kind and so loving, but God, you're also so clear in this text. And so God, help us, help us to hear it. Holy Spirit, would you search us and know us and see if there is any ungodly way in us that we need to repent of, that we need to turn from, that we need to kill. God, thank you for your abundant mercy constant faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.